everybody to this very special edition of the Talking Space Podcast. With me, as always, is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Sawyer. You know, when you want to uh, learn something in particular, you want to go to the experts, and uh, that's where we are tonight. Indeed we are. Gina Herlihy, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fantastic, Sawyer. How are you? I'm beyond amazing tonight, and how are you, Gene McCulka? Uh, sir, we're doing okay. We had a little technical difficulty, but uh, we're we're here and uh, ready to uh, enjoy the evening. That's what matters. And also joining us today, we have a very special guest. Joining us now is a NASA astronaut who has flown aboard the space shuttle four times and performed three EVAs or spacewalks to aid in the construction of the International Space Station. He's also the co-author of Planetology, Unlocking the Secrets of the Solar System, and Hellhawks, and is the sole author of Skywalking, an astronaut's memoir, which was selected as one of the top five books on space in 2006 by the Wall Street Journal. So please welcome Dr. Tom Jones. And also, Gina, since you were amazing enough to be able to get him onto this program, I think I'll let you take it from here. Okay, well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us this evening. We are all very excited to speak with you. Um, I guess I really would like to just jump in and start asking you a couple of questions about your incredible book, Skywalking. And it's such an amazing book, and I'm so enjoying reading it. I'm almost done with it. I really just have to ask, why did you start off the book with a disappointing story when really there's just so much positive in this book, and it's just a riveting read. Why did you start the book off with the STS-80 hatch failure? And, and then, you know, you went from that story into the beginning of your tale or your memoir, if you will. I felt that uh, my experiences on STS-80 on Columbia were probably the highs and lows of my professional career. Um, as an astronaut, you, <laughs> you really are aiming towards you know the peak professional achievement and doing a spacewalk for an astronaut is is right up there at the top perhaps if you were a shuttle commander you might say that flying the shuttle to its landing might be the the peak professional aspiration for yourself but for me uh, as a mission specialist i really wanted to do a spacewalk and you don't automatically get the chance to do that and so on sts 80 i had been given the opportunity to be one of two spacewalkers Tammy Jernigan was the other, and uh, we had trained for more than a year to get ready, uh, about 130 hours underwater, training for two spacewalks to practice constructing the space station. And so you can't imagine, although I tried to write about it in, the, in a way that you would imagine it, <laughs> but I tr you can't imagine how much anticipation goes into that training process. And then when you get to the actual moment, um, it's it's really you're really on the verge of a dream coming true so that was true for me on Columbia and in the opening chapter I wanted people to feel that elation and the anticipation and the excitement and then things didn't go quite as planned and so I think that's probably one of the hardest hitting experiences I had and so I wanted to start off the book with something that would grab people emotionally well it certainly worked um, I really haven't put the book down too too much since then um, can you talk a little bit about Columbia um, Columbia, you flew on that ship. Um, you must have, obviously, memories, attachment to the vehicle itself. After the Columbia tragedy in 2003, knowing that you were on, on her, um, you know, the maiden voyage of the space shuttle program, that ship, how did that make you feel? I know how it made me feel, but I'm not an astronaut that flew on that vehicle. I mean, the personal connection you must have had must have been very intense. Well, I'm looking at a picture uh, from the book right now, the blast off of Columbia on STS-80 with me and my crew aboard. And uh, I really felt during our training 
uh, when we went down to the Cape and actually climbed into Columbia during our countdown rehearsal. And then for the actual launch itself, I really felt like I was you know, climbing into a real piece of history. And that ship had been around the world so many times and had been around and to fly so many crews into orbit that uh, it was a very special space vehicle. And even though Endeavour was my first spaceship, I thought Columbia was a real treat to fly on, to be part of that same cadre of people like John Young and, and Bob Crippen, who had started off the shuttle program. It was really a privilege to fly her. And, and then we got to live aboard for 18 days nearly on the longest shuttle mission. So Columbia was very special for me. And as I said, it, uh, Columbia treated me to some, some great highs and some, some <laughs> devastating lows. And I think that uh, it was really a, a part of my life, that ship. And I had really looked forward to seeing Columbia at the end of the shuttle program in the National Air and Space Museum. I get a chance to go up and pat her on the flanks and mm. you know, maybe even get into the cockpit someday. So that morning, listening to the reentry of Columbia on STS-107 uh, and realizing that she was gone, that was uh, made doubly um, tragic by the fact that I'd lost not only my friends, but also this spaceship that I'd lived aboard. And um, I didn't didn't get to write about this in the book, but I later had the chance to go to the vehicle assembly building and um, walk into the room where the wreckage of Columbia is stored. And that's a very moving memory for me because those same control panels, those same switches that I had once touched and that were touched by my friends on the last mission of Columbia were there to see in, in a very sad way. And uh, it's the right thing to do to preserve that wreckage. And I think even more of it actually should be on display to remind people of the sacrifices that go into space exploration. Uh, but I'm very, I'm still very sad today that that ship, which deserves so much historical acclaim and credit, won't be visible intact for people to see and interact with. Mm. Also, while we're yeah. talking about the different vehicles, you were lucky enough to fly aboard Endeavour, Columbia, and Atlantis, correct? Yes, I, I missed out on Discovery, just didn't get into the rotation for Discovery. But uh, yeah, it was great to fly those three ships. If you were blindfolded and put inside one of those shuttles and the blindfold was taken off, would you be able to tell which shuttle you're in? Like, are there any major differences between the three that you noticed? I think if you were in Discovery or Atlantis or Endeavour, you'd have a lot of trouble telling which ship you were in. They're nearly identical. Uh, and I, I could not even name for you um, a difference that I can point out between those three ships that would be noticeable. One of the ships, I think Atlantis, does not have the um, station power transfer wiring that brings solar power from the station into run the, the shuttle systems and help the fuel cells last longer, help their reactants last longer. So if you knew the switchology for that system, you might be able to notice that Atlantis was different from the other two. But the three are nearly identical. And then Columbia was different because it was the first shuttle. It had test instrumentation installed and several switch panels that dealt with those recorders and sensors that were built into the ship. And even though those sensors were later deactivated, the panels stayed behind. So you could tell by looking around the flight deck that there were a couple of different panel arrangements that were different from the other ships. So that was a giveaway. And truth be told, the Columbia was a little bit more scuffed up on the inside. There were more touch-up paint marks on the panels and uh, switch panels and, and just bulkheads. So you could see it, it had been through a bit more wear and tear, perhaps. Now, you can also tell on the outside, of course, Columbia looks different. But, you know, from the cockpit, you don't really see the wing roots or... Um, much of the structure of the outside of the shuttle. I guess the giveaway would be the the uh, bulbous tip of the vertical tail, where uh, Columbia once had an infrared sensor installed for measuring heat patterns on the exterior heat shield during reentry, and that instrument's no longer active. But the the uh, bulbing uh, the bulbous tip of the tail was left in place. So that was another uh, easy way to see, looking out the back windows of the cockpit, that you were on Columbia. Now, is that why Columbia was chosen for STS-107, since it was a true science mission? Because I heard that Columbia was bigger or heavier, so it wasn't really all that good for lifting too much heavy cargo. Is, um, that's true. In the main, that's true. Columbia had a, a beefier structure. The engineers designed it for the loads that they thought they would experience in ascent and entry and in orbit. And after some flight experience uh, and the, the measurements that Columbia was able to make using those sensors and recorders, uh, the engineers were able to, to skinny down the structure on the follow-on 
vehicles in Discovery and uh, uh, Atlantis and Endeavor. And uh, Atlantis and Endeavor are the, the two lightest ships. They pared down the structure, and that meant more payload could be carried to orbit. So Columbia being heavier and and more beefily built just did not have a few extra thousand pounds of payload capacity. And for space station construction, sometimes that was the make or break. Uh, you wanted to use every pound you could lift in the payload bay to, to get some of the heavier laboratory modules, for example, up to the station, especially and, and the solar array trusses. So uh, Columbia was not going to be able to, to loft those to the altitude and inclination required. And so they kept Columbia from being modified with the docking uh, system and airlock outside in the payload bay, and its airlock was always internal to uh, the ship. You, you could add modules in the cargo bay, like the space hab that it carried on its last mission, but um, it just didn't have the the space station utility, so it was never modified for that. Could you expand a little bit upon your personal experience building the International Space Station, and then what it was like when you finally arrived? at the station? Did it meet your expectations? Um, was it, you know, was it performing up to what you were expected it to do? Or, um, you know, you had such personal involvement, you were there really at the beginning, at the onset of the station, if you could expand upon that. Well, I did work very closely with the planners of the space station and the engineers who designed it uh, at Johnson Space Center. For about three years, I worked, uh, after STS-80, I worked closely with the space station program uh, managers and executives and and the engineers as they essentially built the program from the ground up. We were in the middle of the phase one shuttle Mir program when I came to work with space station. So they were building on that experience, but the 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 hardware was just taking form. There were only a few components that had actually been built. So uh, I saw the planning on the vehicle side of how it was designed and built and what problems were encountered and how they were overcome. And I also uh, I think saw even more closely the operational side of how you operate the station and plan to do that internationally with astronauts from different countries, training challenges, the building of simulators in several different countries, and how you actually can physically get the crew to where they need to be to learn the skills they needed to be on orbit. So integrating the cosmonaut corps with the astronaut corps was probably one of the biggest people and operational challenges. So I saw that process unfold over three years and you know, I never really knew when I would get there, but I, eventually I was lucky enough after a couple of years of that work to get assigned to putting the U.S. laboratory up on uh, what was called Mission 5A, Assembly Mission 5A, STS-98. And so that was a very big reward for me to to know that I'd actually get to see what I'd been working on so, uh, uh, so deeply over the last uh, a few years. And it was a real treat to actually anticipate going to the station and to meet the crew that I would see up there. We met Bill Shepard and Yuri Gudzenko and Sergei Krikalev in training. And then, of course, they rocketed off to the station on a Soyuz in the fall of uh, 2000. And just a few months later, we were going to meet them in space. So that was a, a real reward, I think, for all the grunt work in the trenches. A lot of people worked a lot harder than I did to make the space station a reality, but I was able to add at least some of the astronaut experience and convey that into the program as it was being formed. And I think um, getting up there, I think I saw the payoff for that. Um, we had a uh, an international crew, the first one, and they were getting along just great, and they were handling both Russian and American systems very well. And to float into the space station for the first time was like um, leaving uh, the antiseptic atmosphere of a doctor's office, the, the laboratory-like atmosphere of the shuttle. And then you were floating into somebody's foyer. It was very homey. Uh, a little bit warmer and cozier over in the station. And, uh, you know, even though it had a, a definite space feel, as you've seen in the photographs, it was still somebody's home, a house for some some explorers. And it was really fun to make that transition into that kind of space rather than just the, the very technical environment of the shuttle. So it was a real treat and a big smile on, on my face when I, when I floated up the hatchway into the, sh- the station for the first time. Wow, that's got to be an incredible feeling. I, I can't imagine really, I, I mean, I, I've heard the space station at this point described to me in multiple school buses as an analogy to try to understand, you know, how big it is. And I mean, when you say it's homey, what it looks like to me and the videos I see on NASA are hallways of cable and things all over these tube-like structures. When you say it's homey, is that because does it feel just safer, bigger? I think it's more like a normal house than the space shuttle, certainly, is you could never call the shuttle cockpit 
a house or a home. It's really just a place you can stay alive and work in for a few weeks. But the space station has enough room so that it actually becomes uh, someone's home. Um, and even though it's bigger than it, it, it's bigger today than it was when I visited it in, in 2001, uh, it still has the same basic layout. Uh, there's just one long central axis that's a lot like a submarine passageway, the, the, the long hallway that runs through a submarine. Now branching off at the front end are the laboratories from Japan and Europe, of course, and there's the added volume of the, of node two up at the front, the extra, uh, docking node up there. But, um, it's still got the same basic layout, and even though you see all that clutter and, and hardware and technical equipment on the walls, that's all been put there very deliberately by the people who live aboard, so it's personalized. And even the, the scientific gear has been laid out in a way that suits someone's work style. So it's a very personal space, and certainly when you go take a peek into somebody's bunk up there or their, their little crew quarters compartment, you see that personalization carried to the, to, you know, the level that we'd be familiar with in our own offices or, or, or bedrooms back home. Um, but, you know, the, the common crew quarters, the dining area and all of that gives it a real homey feel. And there's just something uh, uh, more inviting about the space station than the shuttle. Uh, mm. The shuttle is very familiar to me and I'm very comfortable in the shuttle because it's been a friend to me, but um, I think I'd prefer for a long stay certainly to be on the space station. Gene, did you have a question about um, Dr. Friedman's comment today? Yes, exactly. Um, uh, Tom, there was an interesting little quote from Dr. Lewis Friedman, who's the president of the Planetary Society that was in today's Houston Chronicle. Yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, it's something. The, the 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 last part of it, I'm not I'm not really. Uh, I, I will be honest with you. I'm not. I, I think he's he's dead wrong. But uh, now I'll, I'll read the quote. Quote: The 1970s shuttle decision produced a great vehicle and a magnificent technological accomplishment, but ultimately a poor program with no, no destination and little purpose. We hope this type of decision will not be repeated and believe that the stage has been set for something much grander. What's your response to that, and what do you think the ultimate legacy of the space shuttle program will be um, some years down the road when historians are writing, uh, writing the history of manned space? Well, I think you have to look at the space shuttle and its mixed legacy. It's got an incredible technical record of achievement. Uh, it's a reusable spacecraft, and certainly no other country on the face of the Earth has built anything like it or anything close to it in capability. And the fact that it's been around for 30 years and still has not been equaled is an incredible testament to you know, the know-how from the Apollo program that flowed into designing the space shuttle. And it has been our classroom in space for nearly 30 years, teaching us how to live and work and do exquisitely detailed construction work and repair work in space uh, and and of course it's it's pioneered the use of uh, microgravity laboratories before the space station itself came along so it's been a great science platform and a great um, a classroom for teaching us how to operate in low earth orbit and to really get the most out of the human machine combination but it was a very expensive proposition and it's never been a, an affordable space system uh, its existence has precluded NASA from producing other systems that can go beyond the shuttle's capability just because of its operating costs. And it has some tragic vulnerabilities built into it that are a result of some very understandable design decisions back in the 70s that were forced by the budget that was available when it was being planned. And that led to limitations on the shuttle. No crew escape system of any real capacity. So the two crews that we've lost on the shuttle were uh, victims of those early design decisions that led to the operation of a ship with no launch escape, no re-entry escape capability, and it also, the shuttle's design forced it into certain vulnerabilities like that big fragile heat shield that led to catastrophe later on. So certainly those design compromises uh, back in the 70s truly undermined some of the shuttle's success over the years and made it a ship that couldn't not only operate out of low Earth orbit, but couldn't guarantee the safety of its crew. So I think there'll always be that mixed legacy. Now, I don't think that it's a dead-end program. It certainly led to the, the uh, construction of the International Space Station, which has been a success not only technically, but also uh, internationally. And uh, on a look into the future, I think we're going to do things cooperatively on an in international basis much more. And that model from the space station will be a great 
uh, teaching exercise for how we'll do that even more successfully in the future. So the, the shuttle was a definite pathway to the space station, and perhaps its limitations taught us how to design the next generation of space, human space flight without making some of those early mistakes, and maybe we'll benefit from those tragedies along the way. I guess uh, with reference to a follow-up question with that, um, the Orion spacecraft has been characterized by some, uh, Dr. Buzz Aldrin included, as sort of a step backward, uh, looking and using Apollo-style technology instead of moving forward with another another winged craft, a la the space shuttle. In your opinion, is you know Orion, you know the the Orion uh, Altair combination a uh, a backward step, or is or is this this a, a good implementation? I think it's important to realize that the Orion's built for a specific purpose, and that's returning humans to deep space beyond low Earth orbit, and whether your destination is the moon or the nearby asteroids or Mars eventually, that's what Orion is tailored for. And so while we it lacks the elegant way of returning to the Earth that the shuttle has, I don't think that's a strike against it. I think you design a ship to be economical and to have low operating costs and to be safe. These are all lessons we've learned from the shuttle. And Orion is designed to meet those uh, objectives, those design goals. And you don't want to carry landing gear and wings and a large heat shield all the way out to the moon uh, and perhaps some of that, that even to the surface in some, some ways of doing a, a return to the moon. So I, I think Orion is justifiably designed to be a ballistic reentry capsule and it dispenses with the, the landing on a runway. And that's not, to me, a problem at all. I think that's a design choice that you make to make the ship affordable and to make it more efficient in performing that mission. Now, I regret the fact that you know astronauts will have to splash down into the ocean and, and won't land elegantly on a runway, but you know there's a, a commercial revolution in spaceflight going on too, and I would predict that by the time 10 years goes by, we'll have a commercial version that borrows shuttle technology to fly people back to a runway landing. You know whether that's an outgrowth of the new commercial providers that will first go suborbital, or whether it's a, a new design that'll be built by large aerospace companies to compete in the commercial arena, I don't know. But I think the shuttle's capacity for doing a number of great things in low Earth orbit will be replaced commercially, if not by NASA. And you know, NASA should uh, uh, perhaps consider that a way to replace the shuttle's capacities in orbit is to supplement the Orion with commercial vehicles or capabilities that it can contract out for low Earth orbit. Um, in preparation for all this, I stumbled across a really interesting story. Um, it was about you at uh, age five, your grandmother giving you a, uh, a book on spaceflight. I think she picked it up for a quarter. And that's sort of credited, uh, uh, you sort of credited that uh, leading you toward a career and leading you toward being, becoming an astronaut. Is there anyone else that uh, was sort of instrumental in your career? Um, that you can you can look at and say yeah this is a, another individual that sort of was a pivotal individual in your decision. Well, I think that uh, I grew up in the space race of the 1960s, so I was aware of the swirl of interest and hype <laughs> about the early <laughs> astronauts, and uh, certainly the the race to the moon with the Russians was on everybody's minds back in the 60s. It made newspaper headlines on a regular basis. Each Gemini flight was followed minutely by the press and the public, and that was certainly true of most of the Apollo missions uh, until just the last few. So I was very aware of, of how important everybody thought the space effort was, and you know, I think my grandmother was, like any American, interested in that same topic, so that's perhaps why she gave me the book that, you know, pretty much near the dawn of the space age. Uh, so I got in on the ground floor reading about that. Um, I have another cherished book on my shelf called Americans Into Orbit by, I think, by a guy named Gurney. But it was all about the Mercury astronauts. And Gemini had not flown yet in that in that book, which was written in 63 or 64. So it had all of the adventures of the, the Mercury guys on their first few space flights. And that was one that really uh, grabbed my interest as a seven or eight or nine-year-old, too. Uh, I, in fact, I even got John Glenn to sign it many years later. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I got a good start from reading and read everything I could about space at the local library. So if you were going to say who was influential in choosing a spaceflight career, I'd say the local librarians <laughs> along, with, uh, along with my parents. And my dad was a school teacher and a guidance counselor, so he knew how to steer me to places where I could find information about my interest in space and astronomy. And they, you know dug into their pockets one Christmas and 
when I was 12, they bought me my first telescope. Now, it was shared by all of my siblings and I, but certainly I was the one who wanted it the most. And I still have that telescope, too. So, oh, you know, that's wow. a, that was wow. a great thing to, to allow me to explore the universe personally from my, my front yard in Baltimore, Maryland. And, and I think that was, uh, you know, something very smart that my parents did. So I'd have to thank them for the encouragement. They never said, oh, that's silly. And they never said it was impossible. And they never said, oh, that's for somebody very special, not you. They, they really thought that I could apply myself and have a chance to, to do that someday. So with that kind of confidence in my abilities, you know, I was, it was natural for me to go and explore this whole career path further in high school and beyond. Well, Tom, actually, I met you while I was standing at the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation um, autograph show with my five-year-old son, who's now been to two shuttle launches. But I have to say, hearing you talk about the Mercury astronauts, how does it feel to be at an event like that when you're 30 feet away from Scott Carpenter and you are being treated just like him? You're in the club. You are an astronaut and Scott Carpenter's there and Jim Lovell's there and, you know, these guys are big heroes to so many of To me. They're big heroes to me. (laughs) How does that make you feel? That must just be incredible. That's been an awfully nice side benefit of being in the human spaceflight program. And, you know, it's a it's a still a very exclusive club and I've been very lucky and privileged to be a part of it. Um, you know, there's there are many people who apply to the astronaut corps who were more qualified or equally qualified uh, as I was, but because of, you know, interviews or personalities, they didn't get the call to come and participate and I, and my timing worked out so that I got to fly four times. So I'm very aware of how, how lucky I am. And part of that um, association with the astronaut corps means that you get to, to meet these people who were my heroes growing up. I mean, I, I idolized the Mercury and the Gemini astronauts and certainly the Apollo folks too. So what a thrill it's been to actually have a conversation with uh, many, many of them. I've, I've met a lot of the Apollo moonwalkers. And as you know, from reading Skywalking, I got to fly T-38 jets with John Young from Apollo 16 and from Gemini 3 and, you know, the, the first shuttle flight. So it's a pinch me kind of moment when you wind up in a cockpit with some explorer pioneer like that. And I've, I've been very gratified by um, actually being accepted by people like Scott Carpenter, John Glenn, you know, John Young as a colleague. Now, you know, I think they understand uh, how much more risky it was back then, and I certainly think it was much riskier to be an astronaut back in those early days. So they really laid it on the line in a way that I perhaps didn't have to. And they achieved things that made it safer and made it possible for us to do many more ambitious things in space than perhaps they got to do, short of the moon landing, I, I suppose. So it, that's been a great a, a great experience to get to know them on a personal level and um, everybody from Buzz Aldrin to um, Al Warden to um, you know the, a few of the uh, the Mercury guys. I, I, I don't think Glenn would be somebody who he would call. He he wouldn't refer to me as a friend, but he'd certainly refer to me as a colleague. And I think that's just really a nice um, benefit of having worked in the shuttle program. We we all shared the same experiences physically, and I think we all share the same love of discovery that astronauts of today feel, and I think young people will feel. Mark, you had a question with reference to another book that uh, that Tom's written um, about uh, about World War II, correct? Oh yes, sir. Uh, we're uh, we're pretty close to the same age. I'm maybe a little over a year behind you. And one of the things that was uh, one of those exciting reads when you're growing up was was a World War II Army Air Corps book. And here you've written the book Hellhawks. And what was the spark for writing that? Because that was an era. That was 20 years before you were born. Hellhawks is the is a labor of love because I always admired the pilots and, in fact, all the servicemen who fought in World War II. And I'm very much still interested in military history, so I read very widely on that subject. When I was growing up as a kid, when I was 10 or 15, I wanted to be a pilot, uh, maybe so I could become an astronaut. But I also read all these flying stories of of aviators in World War II, read all about the fighter aces and the bomber pilots. And so I grew up admiring those gentlemen who were at that time only, you know, 45 years old. Now they're 85 years old and we're losing them very rapidly. I met while I was at the Air Force Academy, uh, the father of one of my roommates. And my roommate's dad was a World War II fighter pilot in the Thunderbolt fighter bomber 
and he was in a group called the Hellhawks. And so I first learned about that back in about 1975. But over the years, I've learned more about his experiences and those of his colleagues in that particular job of fighting the German army using these massive Thunderbolt fighter bombers trying to blow a path through the enemy for the GIs on the ground in Europe. And I wanted to tell that story someday, and I finally got the opportunity to uh, work with my co-author, Bob Dorr, and do the research and tell that story. So it's a tribute to all those World War II servicemen who laid it on the line when they were 20 years old. Uh, Bob Hagen, my friend's dad, who was the uh, uh, inception of the book, Bob flew over 100 combat missions in the Thunderbolt and came home and then turned 21, and he was finally able to vote. So those are the kind of young people that I admired growing up, and now I get to talk with them at age 85 or 86 and still learn their stories, and it's a remarkable privilege to get to become friends with these guys who lived through some of the most momentous times of the 20th century. So that's why we wrote Hellhawks, was to tell their story. It was a little-known part of World War II, and one of that story to get out there, and I wanted young Americans to learn about the people who fought for their freedom 65 years ago. Wow, that's incredible. You've got another amazing book as well, this Planetology book, and obviously your background as an advanced education um, is in planetary science. And this book is uh, has a beautiful cover to it. It is a, is it, the, the Smithsonian is the publisher of that book as well? National and- Geographic. National, National Geographic. Geographic, and as you might expect, it is a very image-rich book because that's the trademark National Geo uh, skill, and so we worked very closely with the photo archivists at the National Geographic, and we have, in planetology, that we tell the story of the process that shaped the solar system, but we tell it visually through all the latest imagery from around the solar system from NASA's robotic probes and, and our international partners' robotic Uh, imagery from around the solar system. And then we combine that with uh, shots taken from Earth orbit of the Earth. Uh, It's, of course, a planet in its own right and and our textbook for learning about the rest of the solar system. And then we blend that with a lot of ground images, beautiful shots from the National Geographic files that illustrate geological phenomena like impact and volcanism and erosion and tectonics. And so you'll find it a really uh, visually grabbing book with some great material for both young people and and the student of planetary science. A great Christmas gift. Oh, it certainly is a beautiful book. I I had the opportunity to flip through it, and um, I think I am going to order me one for my son and for myself, too. Well, young people can start by reading the captions with the beautiful photos in there, and then they can uh, graduate to the, the chapter material, which is not technically too daunting. It's written at the National Geographic magazine uh, level, if you will. And uh, I think that uh, it was a very successful collaboration with Ellen Stofan, my co-author. She's one of the scientists that I worked with very closely on my first two shuttle flights. She was part of the JPL ground science team for the Space Radar Lab, and of course I was part of the orbital science team for that. And we worked very closely in the planning and execution of that mission. So we were delighted to be able to finally put some of our experiences in the field into a story that tells us about how the solar system looks the way it does today and explains the processes that shape not only the other planets but our own world as well. It's phenomenal. Do you have anything else you want to add about any of your books? Well, for young people, I'd recommend they look up one of my older books called Mission Earth. It's out of print, but you can still find a lot of used copies on Amazon, for example. And Mission Earth is about my first two flights studying the changing Earth from the Space Shuttle Endeavor with the Space Radar Lab, and it's written for middle school audiences. It's got a great collection of photographs of my orbital experiences, and it's almost like an orbital diary compared in parallel with the investigations that the scientists were doing on the ground to understand our orbital observations. So if some young person wants a real taste of what it's like to live and explore space, Mission Earth is a good way to start. Um, I think that that's a, a great one to to peruse if you've got a dream about being an explorer in space someday yourself. And I think that um, uh, one of the most rewarding things I've done since flying in space has been try to share those experiences in print. And that's one way to communicate what it's like up there. And I try to do my best at giving people the human dimension of spaceflight, both in skywalking and in planetology. And I tried to share what my World War II heroes experienced in their fight against the Germans during World War II in the pages of Hellhawks. Now, I hope you don't mind again. I've got one more quick question here. Go ahead. All right. Uh, well, first off, I just have to ask, since I'm a classic rock fan, 
Can I guess that your least favorite group is now The Doors? <laughs> no, they have they had some good music, and that's that was just funny. Uh, it wasn't funny at the time, but I I can appreciate the humor now. And I think what happened there with that story, the morning we found out our two spacewalks were canceled on Columbia, they opened up our day by waking us up with this music from The Doors, and it was this song that maybe you've heard called "Break On Through to the Other Side," and. It wasn't one of my favorites, but when I heard that, I thought, well, they must have found the solution to the problem. And so that was going to be a, a, a big news, a, a good news kind of day because they'd started off with that upbeat tune. And perhaps what happened was they thought we were going to get to do these spacewalks and they were trying to keep us cheered up. But that morning just happened to be the morning that the mission management team actually concluded that the risks of, of trying to bludgeon our way out of the jammed hatch were probably uh, not worth risking the science goals that we had on that flight. So they made the right call. They didn't know what music had been laid in for wake-up music that morning. And so it just was sort of a funny contrast between the upbeat message of the song and the real downer of a message from the mission management team. So, Also on the last mission that you went on, STS-98, when you actually were successfully able to complete three EVAs with uh, Robert Kirby. What was going through your head right before the first spacewalk, before you opened the hatch? Oh, I have a very good memory. <laughs> so I was in that airlock in a vacuum with Bob, wondering whether I'd get the hatch to open. And I was reasonably sure that the handle was going to open, uh, unlike how it performed or didn't perform on STS-80. But, um, you know, I still didn't know what my performance would be in this unknown environment. I'd trained for several hundred hours in this particular case to get outside on STS-98. And so until the moment I actually got the hatch to open and then fought my way through the fabric thermal cover, <laughs> that was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be, until I actually floated outside and had the sunshine warming up my arms and legs through the fabric of the spacesuit, and I could actually see the Earth and the black sky through the faceplate of the helmet. Then I really knew I had the experience of a lifetime underway. And, and it was a great moment just stepping out into that sunshine and realizing that I had this whole world to explore out there for the next three spacewalks. It was a real privilege to get the, the chance to do that. And I'm, I'm very grateful that my boss back on Earth actually reassigned me to have another chance at a spacewalk. That wasn't a given. Uh, Tom, you talk about in your book um, a quote that's really grabbed me. Um, Trust and risk are inseparable elements of space exploration. And you talk about it in the context of all of the people that you depend on to have a successful space mission. Sure, the astronauts um, are the most visible part of the team, but there's just so many people that need to have, be good at their jobs and be successful for the whole mission to be a success. Now, as we look down the path of shuttle wind, you know, winding down and certainly having a gap period between shuttle and Constellation, what do you think is going to become of the NASA workforce that is so specialized and so technically trained to do such a great job? Um, we're going to lose these people. Do you think NASA, NASA has contingency plans in place to try to keep as many of them employed and focused on Constellation as possible? Um, or will this really hurt uh, the continuity of safety and know-how that NASA has been able to build up through 30 years of the shuttle program. I think there's no question that NASA will lose talent and irreplaceable talent in the process of shifting over to the Orion program. And um, it's inescapable that layoffs are going to occur this year as the shuttle winds down and NASA's planning for transitioning to the Constellation systems from the shuttle was trying to preserve as many of those folks as possible and their talents and and retain those critical skills as we get started on flying a new vehicle. But because of the budget shortfalls that NASA has seen over the last five years, um, those plans have not been able to, to really meet the, the problem or the challenge. So what was once supposed to be a two-year stand down between the shuttle and Orion uh, and the Ares-1 has now turned into five or more and there's really no way you can paper over that gap. There's, there are people who will lose their jobs at the Cape this year and in Houston and around the other NASA centers if they're connected with human spaceflight. 
and some of those people will not be offered positions because they're just not ready yet. The, the money isn't there yet to open up new positions or slots in Constellation. And certainly at the Cape, there won't be any launch operations going on for five or six years. And it's going to be a, a really tough loss for NASA and the country because when the time comes, we're going to have to find all those talents and skills again. And those people may not be available. In fact, many of them will not be. They'll have either retired or they will have gone off and found better opportunities more stable employment, if you will, and they'll be lost and we'll have to start from scratch and training up new people. And I think that's a terrible price to pay for um, that budget uh, parsimony over the last five years. The, the, I, I really fault the last administration with not living up to its stated goals. They proposed great goals and direction for NASA, but then didn't provide the funds. And I'm, I'm at a loss as to why they didn't follow through. But that's that's got a real definite human cost. So, yes, I believe that uh, the workforce is all important to success and to safety. Uh, you need those people to know uh, to know and understand that there are humans involved on the on the crew. Of course, they understand that intellectually, but you want them to know about your families. You want them to know about you as a person. And that's why astronauts spend a lot of time at Cape Canaveral at the Kennedy Space Center, walking through the orbiter hangars and talking to the technicians who are working on the night shift. Whenever I was down there, I would always make a, take a trip to one of the facilities and just stop by, drop in, and it was a habit with, with many of us to go and talk to the people at the working level so that they knew that we appreciated their efforts and that later on, when they were tired or when they were feeling like they were going to perhaps uh, slip into a shortcut or perhaps you know, uh, not have their attention focused, they would remember what was really at stake. And I, I think that partnership between the workers around the country and the astronauts is a very strong one and one that NASA will have to rebuild with its new people when they finally get around to flying again. Now, what do you think about the budget that's put in front of the um, president this week? Um, it seems like NASA is basically getting what it's asking for. Do you think this is enough or do you think it's going to be basically just um, being able to maintain the development of Project Orion? Well, the good news this week was that the Congress authorized uh, a bump up of NASA's budget to around $19 billion. That's good in that there's a significant increase above inflation for NASA this coming year, but it still doesn't make up for the shortfalls over the last five years. And it's not fair to the current administration to uh, have to rectify the situation that's built up over five years. But nevertheless, that's where we are today. So if this administration wants to see the space program proceed to new frontiers, to, to pioneer new discoveries and send astronauts beyond the space station as NASA has been directed to and has, as the Congress has endorsed, the administration is going to have to come up with the funds. So they have a choice, a very stark one, about whether uh, NASA and the, the U.S. retain leadership and space experience and capability or whether we are surpassed in the next five years or so by other countries that um, budget for space achievement more vigorously. And I, I think that regrettably... Uh, the White House is in a, between a rock and a hard place. They have to make some hard choices about devoting these extra resources to NASA. That's the only way out of it. Certainly, there is reorganization that can be done within NASA to make it more efficient. And I hope Charlie Bolden has you know, good proposals on the table for that. And, the, at the, and then the White House will back him up as he tries to make the space agency more efficient. But if you look back over the last 15 years, NASA has lost about 25% of its buying power in real terms by becoming more efficient and by shedding some of the waste and, and fat in its operations. And I think it's about the leanest you can make it. My experience on the NASA Advisory Council the last three years has convinced me that there is not a lot of fat to cut out and that people were trying to keep Constellation moving forward while trying to finish the space station and, and operate the shuttle safely. They've been doing that in good faith. And I think the only way to reward that good faith is to give the resources to the space program that it deserves. Um, Tom, if you could make the decision about NASA's, NASA's future, given what's um, been reported by the Augustine Committee, which path would you take or what do you think is the best way for NASA to proceed heading into the future? My opinion is, and I write about this in the last chapter of Skywalking, is that it's very important that we continue to challenge ourselves in the human spaceflight program if we want to make important discoveries using the talents of humans, we need to send them beyond the space station in low Earth orbit. We've been there for 30 years uh, and even longer, actually. And we need to, once again, put human explorers and their talents and skills out there on the frontier. 
And that frontier is on the lunar surface. It's on the nearby asteroids. It's at certain construction sites at the Lagrange points between Earth, Moon, and, and Earth and the Sun. And eventually it's going to be on Mars as we push back the frontiers. So uh, I think the, the fundamental thing that the Augustine Committee pointed out is, is that we can't reach those frontiers without additional resources and that it's very important for national leadership and national defense and, and economic competitiveness that we put a new challenge in front of us to send human explorers beyond where we've been for the last 30 years. That is the key point, is to make sure that we have a challenge in front of us that can inspire young people to go into the fields of math and science and engineering and give those explorers the resources that they need to make sensible progress. Um, it'll be easy to make a decision to just mark time. The hard decision will be to continue to challenge ourselves and declare that the U.S. is going to still be at the forefront of exploration in, uh, in sending humans into space. And I think there is value from sending humans out there to use their skills as field explorers. If, if resources on the moon are practically extractable, then we should send people down there to set up that operation. And then maybe we can go on from the moon after that's done. And we should certainly tap into the known resources like water uh, that are at the near-Earth objects. And those are within human reach in the next 10 years as we develop um, skills to, to uh, glide across deep space with the new heavy lift Ares 5, for example, and, and the Orion spacecraft. And I really believe that Mars is a very scientifically worthy goal to attain, but I think before we get to Mars, we ought to spend some time actually generating wealth and making money in space close to the Earth and the Moon by using the resources, energy, and materials, and water that are out there. And when we generate a thriving economic base between here and the Moon, I think that'll give us a lot more resources than to catapult scientific explorers to Mars. In the meantime, uh, we can continue to explore Mars robotically. So it's a partnership. You send robots to where humans can't reach now, and then when you're ready, you can send human explorers to t tackle the tough questions. You cover um, launch coverage on Fox News, and I am quite often horrified by how little the American media covers what's happening in space. Maybe NASA's a victim of its own success, and okay, yeah, another space shuttle mission is, oh, another success, great, it landed. I mean, you sort of get, I mean, when I talk to people about my excitement about space, they just, yeah, yeah, another space shuttle mission is, I can see the glazing of the eyes, you know. And I think the press or the American media is really missing the boat here because I think there's so much good that comes out of NASA and so exciting. And, you know, as a correspondent on a major news network, I mean, how do you feel about this? Do you think that the outreach is appropriate, not enough, or do you have any idea, you know, really why, or do you think it will pick up as we try to outreach back to the moon and out towards Mars? Well, I think you're right that they miss an opportunity to excite audiences and to grab audiences with the, the exciting work that gets done in space, both by people who fly robots to other worlds and, and by, you know, astronaut experiences and, and work uh, in orbit on the space station, for example. I think there's a lot more that can be told about that story that's going on above us right now. But the news business is very strange. You know, they are driven by the immediate and the topical and something that they can show moving pictures of. So if you've got a still photo of the universe or a new image from the Hubble telescope, that's not as grabbing in their mind as uh, moving pictures of a car chase. <laughs> Sad to say, you know, I've been on tap for a space a space segment and I've been bumped by a car chase that just pops up in Los Angeles or something so that they're really driven by um, immediate news and it has to be visually grabbing as well so NASA can work with those kinds of constraints and try to provide that kind of exciting content that will make the news and you know it's all of our jobs I think to demand space news from the media outlets that's something they can, we can let them know about and then it's, of course, our job to be able to, to tell the story in an exciting way. And the space program sometimes has trouble doing that, much to my chagrin. But we ought to try to be better communicators, and we ought to try to use the new social networking opportunities we have electronically to get the word out and get people to understand that there's things that are interesting and exciting that are happening every day. So I appreciate your efforts on spreading that word out there. And, and I'll try to keep up my end by suggesting good stories to to Fox News and other other uh, media folks. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being a part of Talking Space. I mean, this is exactly what we're trying to do, just get the word out, 
cause some buzz and excitement and, you know, educate America on why it's so important that we continue to maintain our lead if we haven't lost it already in space. And it's been a real pleasure to have you on tonight. I mean, you're just an amazing um, insider information that, um, I mean, I, I, I can personally say I've eaten everything up that you've said, so I'm sure my team probably will say the same. Well, thank you for the compliment, and I'm happy to participate, and hope we, hopefully we can come back and talk some more about other interests of mine, and that's protecting the Earth from a future asteroid strike and sending humans out to explore those same nearby bodies. So we've got uh, some benefits and hazards to contend with on the asteroids, and I hope we can come back and talk about that. In the meantime, check me out on uh, astronauttomjones.com, and I, my Twitter name is uh, TomJones underscore Astro. And I'm on Facebook, too. So see you all there. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dr. Tom Jones, for coming on. Very much appreciated. And your insight is absolutely amazing. My pleasure. Thank you to everybody here with us. Uh, Gene McCulka, thank you. Always a pleasure, Sawyer. I'm always honored to be here tonight. I think we all were. Thank you as well, Gina Hurley, and especially for being able to get Dr. Tom Jones with us for his amazing insight. My pleasure. And Mark Ratterman, once again, thank you for all of your help and your questions, especially with your input for working for the FAA and about his book, Hellhawks. Well, you know, you can uh, call me Mark, but my name should be speechless at this point. <laughs> I would say that's a very good representation of most of us and probably most of you out there listening. So once again, thank you for listening, and I'm pretty much getting tongue-tied trying to say all of this, but have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. You know the day destroys a night, night divides a day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. We chased our pleasures here, dug our treasures there. I can't stay.